For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Glad we have a chance to be here together to talk about the Vimalakirti Sutra. Um, if I'm not off during this, it's because my allergies are going crazy. So that adds a third version of silence for the Vimalakirti Sutra. There's the one with Shariputra and Magdalena and another monk who are silent because they can't think of any anything intelligent to say. And then there's Vimalakirti's silent roar. Um, of non-discrimination that cuts through all dualities. That won't be mine. Mine will just be falling asleep. Um, I wanted to talk tonight about uh, Chapter 9, the Dharma door of non-duality, which is, it's also been called sometimes the Sutra, well, the, the Sutra has been called the not just the Vimalakirti Sutra, but the Sutra on Reconciliation of Dualities. In that Dharma door, referred to in the title as just like Dharma gates are boundless, we go to enter them. The Dharma door, the Dharma gate of non duality, is the door we pass through in order to uh, the realization of emptiness and non duality, we can achieve liberation from delusion and suffering. Uh, Taigen has mentioned that the Vimalakirti Sutra has pointed out that it's different from other sutras and that the, usually the sutra involves the, the Buddhist sermons to uh, the disciples. Uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra is made up largely in over at least six chapters so far before this one has been made up of Avimalakirti's um, conversations with the disciples, the Shravakas and, and the great Bodhisattvas. But then we come to this chapter, which is the opportunity for the Bodhisattvas to speak. And so they speak about their understanding of non-duality. Um, so just to recap what goes on, in the chapter, um, the Malakirti asks the Bodhisattvas, good sirs, please explain how the Bodhisattvas enter the Dharma door of non-duality. And by duality, uh, the Malakirti isn't just referring to pairs of things or binary concepts. Non-duality, uh, duality is... Um, the proliferation of separate things. Non-duality is the formless world thing that we realize when we're free from thinking of and perceiving the world as um, separate, independent, abiding entities, the diversity entities. And um, it's true that we frequently think in, the, in dichotomies and 
And um, so this is it's an elab this is an elaboration of that too. Perhaps uh, perhaps the the explanations about how to enter non-duality by the bodhisattvas are showing how um, an, an understanding of emptiness plays out uh, as we encounter what we think of as separate things and, and, and opposite concepts. So 38 of the bodhisattvas among thousands offer explanations. And they rely on the teaching of emptiness, but it's interesting that none of them actually explains what emptiness is or how exactly to achieve this understanding or realization of emptiness. And in order to re uh, reconcile the different uh, dichotomies, it's just like, well, there is emptiness, and then we apply it to to see how to reconcile or even, I guess, dissolve really the dichotomies that there is. And they, they mention a bunch of dichotomies that are um, uh, dualities that are important in Buddhist teaching and that are important in our lives. So they talk about birth and death and self and other and self and no self and good and bad and truth and falsehood and enlightenment and ignorance and more. So 36 more, or 32 more. And um, they use a sort of um, special argumentation, a special analysis to uh, when they address this question. So the very first of the Bodhisattvas to speak is uh, Dhamma Vikravana. And he says, noble sir, Production and destruction are two. So it's saying birth and death are two. What is not produced and what does not occur cannot be destroyed. Thus, understanding and becoming accustomed to birthlessness of things is the entry into non-duality. So as I said, it doesn't describe, let's say, dependent, codependent origination, um, dependent co-arising, and how that might that leads to an understanding, at least an intellectual understanding of what emptiness is and the non-existence non of things, uh, conventional things. He just jumps into it. Um, and um, so uh, he stated what he's saying of, well, what we call things are, you know, assuming that we can plug in, that he's saying that, well, if you understand emptiness, and this is what happens. I think we can say that he's saying that while things are composites of constituent elements and they can change and everything is um, uh, dependent on causes and conditions so that there really are no substantial, separate, independent, abiding things that can form a duality. So since we've already said that, that uh, things don't, are neither born, they never come into being, they can't die, they can't go out of being because they're, they've never come into being. So every, there is, are no things, so we've dissolved any dichotomy among all the things in the world. And another one, Sumetta uh, declares uniqueness and character, characterlessness uh, form and emptiness. 
are two. Not to presume one can or construct something is neither to establish its uniqueness or to establish its characterlessness, so it doesn't establish its nature as either form or emptiness. And so to penetrate the equality of these two is to duality. So, um, you know, restatement might be um, if you just don't contract, uh, conceptually treat this chair here, and emptiness is real separate things, then you enter non-duality. Manjushri is sitting there and as the great, you know, the, the young prince of, of wisdom who understands non-duality perfectly, um, he comments that, well, good sirs, you've all spoken well. Nevertheless, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. To know no one teaching, to express nothing, to say nothing, to explain nothing, to announce nothing, to indicate nothing, and to designate nothing, that is the entry into non-duality. And I guess we, I think, all of us would have to agree on the first part that this is a bunch of wordiness and it's not clear. How satisfactory it is to us because the, the arguments, um, the 38 arguments pretty much take the form of, okay, there's emptiness, so this doesn't exist and that doesn't exist. I've dissolved this duality. Or um, this doesn't exist and the existence of this over here depends on the existence of that. If this doesn't exist, well, then that can't either. So, what does he, where, is it, where did I put it? That's, the, that's what the second of the Bodhisattvas argues. He says, um, maybe it's a, he's attempting to add a little elegance to his argument because he says, um, yeah, the Bodhisattva Sri Ganda declared, I and mine are two. If there's no presumption of a self, I haven't um, grasped the self through any of my thinking or knowledge, then there can be no mind either. So that's how you enter non-duality. It's an interesting idea because, of, you know, if you're talking about, well, uh, there's a duality of things, I don't know. Uh, me and my motorcycle. If I don't exist, then my motorcycle can't exist. It's an argument, but it seems like it would have been more straightforward just to say, well, the motorcycle's empty too, so I've dissolved the difference between these two things. There is no duality here. That's not duality. But note when um, Manjushri says, well, You've spoken pretty well. Everything you say is true in a way, uh, but it's kind of misleading because you're using a lot of concepts and concepts necessarily refer to things. And so you're just bringing about a prolifer proliferation of your own thinking of things. You're just creating a new proliferation of the experience of duality. So what you really need to understand is the expression of duality, the realization of, I mean, of non-duality, the realization of non-duality comes about by not speaking, not using concepts, uh, 
designating nothing at all. That's it. And um, I think it's fair to note that when he says that, he is using additional words himself to argue this. And um, he's introducing, he's still referring to dualities by talking about there's duality and non-duality, the way we recon reconcile duality is by not speaking or thinking or using concepts, which is different from using concepts or speaking. So I'm not sure that he's escaped that trap successfully. So then Banjushri uh, wants to know what the Malakirti's view is. And he asks the Malakirti, we've all given our own teachings. Now would you elucidate the teaching of the entry into duality? And the Malakirti just sits there uh, keeping his silence and saying nothing at all, which is the great climax of the sutra. It's all been leading up to Vimalakirti's science. And Majushri applauds Vimalakirti saying, excellent, excellent noble sir, this is indeed the entrance into the non-duality of the Bodhisattvas. Here there is no use for syllables, sounds, and ideas. So, I mean, his view is Vimalakirti's agreed with him um, you need to stay away from using words and syllables and sounds and ideas. He's come back right after Vidal Kirti's been silent talking about that, and so he's jumped back into talking and talking about the entrance again, the entrance into non-duality uh, is to not use dualistic speech, sounds, syllables, and so on. But uh, I have to say that, that I think it's pretty clear that Manjushri hasn't understood what Vimalakirti is doing. Vimalakirti is not agreeing with Manjushri, saying that's right, you need to avoid speech, you need to avoid conceptualization in order to enter non-duality. So he's not taking a side one way or the other. What he's doing, I mean, after all, you know, he is... Uh, over the last six chapters, he's done most of the talking. So he has, you know, he has <laughs> no brief for not speaking and not thinking. He, he does quite a lot of it. So you at least have to question uh, Manjushri's understanding. And I think the understanding is that, that this is the silence between speech and silence, right? He's avoided a non-duality by not taking the position at all. He's not supporting speech as a, as a means to enter non-duality. He's not uh, approving silence as an entry into non-duality. And um, so what I think is going on is that he's just sitting there um, without dualistic thinking, desires, emotions, um, he's sitting zazen. And um, letting thoughts come up, 
and go away, letting desires come up and go away, letting emotions come up and go away, and being aware, then being present in the experience of non-duality when he's not caught up in these mental activities. So in chapter six, he's explained once before when he was talking with Manjushri, he didn't, I guess, didn't get it, that the Bodhisattva's liberative technique is not seeking to subdue the mind, um, neither controlling or indulging the mind, not seeking an end to dualism or the cessation of suffering for that matter. So this is the true doorway. We can do this because, as Bhimala Kiriti has explained also, that the, the, um, the intrinsic nature of our mind is free from attachment and aversion and free from conceptualization and imaginary fabrication. So when we let go of thinking and fabrication and conceptualization and constructions and attachment and aversion, we enter the door to non-duality. So beyond that, um, I think he is demonstrating that this sitting uh, beyond uh, speech and silence, uh, all of the dualities that are in there is necessary for liberation because mere philosophical argument and explanations are just don't touch the problem of our experience of, of uh, duality and our delusion uh, because they just stay within the realm of dualistic language and our dualistic organization. of the world, and those arise before any discursive thought, even before any conceptual understanding, um, our um, dualistic grasping of the world and dualistic attachment and aversion take place uh, reflexively and even perhaps instinctively. And so philosophy, in coming up with a description of a description of either emptiness or how if we realize emptiness, not only we understand that all this other stuff is also empty and resolve all the dualities that, that might cause problems in our lives, that's not going to do it. It's not going to provide the cure to our sickness of delusion, attachment, and aversion. So I'll give a hypothetical, concrete example of what I mean when I say that, that our dualistic uh, thinking and attachment and aversion are, arise before the level of any discursive thinking, before any philosophical argument can even take place. So let's say I've, I've come to ancient Dragon Zen Gate to sit Zazen, participate in the service, and sadly to give a Dharma talk. And uh, my knees are hurting, 
because I've been practicing my prostrations. And anyway, I've spent years and years abusing my knees with running and doing zaza. So when I come in and I want to find a, a place to sit that's going to uh, be, won't be hard on my knees. So as background, Buddhist psychology would say that my unconscious, what's called the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness, among other things, is a repository of, um, of abstract concepts um, that allow us to identify objects based on defining characteristics. Those are called signs. And um, these abstract concepts in the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness, are called baseless because they don't really have a good uh, um, grasp of the reality. They are fixed, unitary, unchanging, uh, defined things. Uh, and so uh, let's say I come into the Zendo and I'm looking around for a place to sit and in the corner of my eye, I notice this thing that has uh, a back and a platform and legs. It's a platform where I can sit. And yet, so those, those are identifying characteristics would be the signs that allow me my, and then for um, this conditioning, I have to attach the concept do, uh, chair to what I've just seen. But it's a, it's a fairly abstract version of chair, right? It's not a specific chair, it's just, okay, that's a chair there. And um, so this chairness, the idea that it's a separate thing called a chair, is something that I have um, projected upon the world. I've imputed to this, whatever this is that I saw. It's, it's a chair. And... Um, you know, I, it could have, I guess I could have come up with other labels for it to understand it. I could have, based on what I do at home, it could have been a place where I stack books, or it could be something that I stand on to get things off of a high shelf in a closet or in a cupboard. So that linking of, the, of that concept to a sensory, sensory stimulus, a percept, is called, and we want to keep the concept that too, it's called the construction or fabrication. And that's dualistic because it has I've identified this thing that stands out from everything else, this individual separate thing. And also, um, when I do that, uh, you know, there's at least uh, the beginnings of an under a sense that I am seeing it. But at this point, um, this conceptual construction of fabrication is, is really referential. I see a chair over there uh, without getting too much involved in what that means. 
But almost simultaneously, a more interesting thing starts to happen. And in the words of the Vinoli Kirti Sutra, I take an interest in the chair because I want to sit someplace that's going to be easy on my knees. I've seen the chair, and Jerry is sitting there. <laughs> so I'm looking at the chair, thinking that was going to be my chair. And I have focused on it. And um, developed a, uh, a conviction. That's what people are thinking about. A conviction that there is a real chair, there's a real thing called a chair that's sitting over there in Jerry the City. And I'm upset. Um, there's some dukkha going on because I am not, uh, I'm not getting what I would like to have. So, you know, dukkha is, you know, Wanting what we don't have, not wanting what we have, fearing that you're going to lose something you like. This is definitely the one that I don't get the thing I want. So, uh, having done that um, and paid attention, develop this conviction that there really is something there that I've perceived, not that I have sort of created, that I've created this chair somewhere. And some thinkers, I think principally in Tibet, have called this uh, enchantment. Because, you know, the collection, uh, this collection of a back and a seat and legs and some braces has now become this unitary object out there. It's a a fixed, separate, independent, unitary, integrated whole. And as I pay attention to it, um, the sense of that chair is a real thing there, and as I desire it more, um, the desire is based on desire for this thing, the chair. The sense of the chair become gains substance, it becomes more solid, it gets heft, it becomes more real. And at the same time, my awareness of myself as someone who's perceiving it and who wants that chair uh, also becomes stronger. So, uh, you know, when this enchantment occurs, you know, the sense of the, the chair becomes more real, the sense of myself as a separate subject becomes more real, and the chair becomes, in a way, sort of a separate thing. It's a chair. It, it, there's a chair there, and it has a back, and it has a seat, and it has legs, and it has braces. Where is that chair that has these things? Why is that different from the things? It's sort of a ghost chair. Um, well, could you show me the clock? What? The what? The clock. The non-clock. I need to see the non-clock. That contraption? That contraption there. Um, And, you know, this sort of analysis and its importance has been recognized from very early sutras and treatises, even in 
early Indian pre-Mahayana Buddhism as well as in Mahayana Buddhism. Especially as it applies to us. Um, You know, in chapter four, when, no, chapter five, the consolation of the Indian, when Manjushri and the thousands of disciples and bodhisattvas and divine and semi-divine creatures and people show up, um, Vimala Kirti says that, you know, in order to rid yourself of suffering, get rid of, of duality and the suffering that comes from that, you have to realize uh, you have to understand uh, who lists the things that, that um, early Buddhism would have used to make this argument that, look, there's no person there. There's only, you know, the five skandhas, form, sensation, perception, formations, and consciousness. And they're the four elements, and they're all the atomic dharmas that make that up. So there's there's no there's nothing behind it. There's no person there. It's just a song. And then Mahayana would say, "Yeah, that's true." And also, um, anything that we perceive is is going to be um, entirely relational. Uh, it's related. It only is real so far in the sense that it does relate to other things, which are defining it and supporting it, um, and causing it as part of the uh, codependent arising in the world, the mutually dependent causes and conditions, the whole network of causation that that this chair or I are participating in and that I contribute to as a cause and a condition existence of other things. And you kind of go, well, why is that so important? It's important because when the enchantment occurs and we start thinking of the chair as a thing that has characteristics, not that it's made up of these parts, but it has its own characteristics. Or I think of myself as uh, Douglas, who has, you know, gray hair and blue eyes and all the rest of it. There's a Douglas there that has those things, but who can't be found as you analyze what's going on. It's a sort of shadow Douglas. And the importance of that, the importance of our sense of being a shadow Douglas is that that's why we worry about Am I smart enough to do well at school? Am I going to get good grades? Am I going to have a good job review this time? Um, do people like me? And so on. Um, and equally important, um, it, it brings up the, the preoccupation that because I'm Shadow Douglas, kind of a where is Shadow Douglas? I'm here somewhere, but there's a sense of um, vulnerability. I have to be protected. I have to have security. I have to have pleasure. I have to have reinforcement of my significance and value. And all of that, I'm the center of 
from the center around which everything that I experience is revolving. It's important insofar as it makes me happy, uh, gives me what I want and holds off what I don't want. And so we're prepared to ignore the suffering of other beings or at least discount it tremendously. My hangnail is, you know, that's apparently a lot more important to me than the death of many people in Ukraine or Sudan. Because based on how much I'm doing to take care of my hangnail, at least I'm trying to deal with that and I'm doing nothing for the Ukraine or the Sudan. So that's why I say that part of the Malakirti's situation is that you have to learn to deal with the duality that arises before you reach the level of philosophical argument, trying to explain away dualities by saying, well, things are really empty. But you, just, you, you need to understand that everything is made up of parts, it's constantly changing, it's dependent on everything else, so it can't be independent or uh, self-sufficient. It can't exist in itself and by itself. Um, you know, while that thinking is going on, all this other stuff is going on, because as you're thinking, you're looking out at the world or you're thinking of the world, and the same thing happens when you're thinking of the world. Uh, you're actually perceiving the world while you're having desires about the world, while you're having emotions about the world, all of those mental activities are experienced as relating to an object out there and to the subject. Yeah. So that is going on all the time. You're saying, you know, there's really no shame of anything wrong. And uh, much more powerful because it's constant, ongoing. And so philosophical argument, I think, well, it's informative and helpful and it points out the issues and the significance of what we do and the necessity for practice. It doesn't really touch our dualistic approach to life. It does not end it. So we have to do something. We have to sit and, and step back from the thinking and desire and emotion doesn't mean we don't feel it, but we step back from it, and that's how we have entered the realm of non-duality. So um, that practice, sitting and stepping back from those middle activities, is the true way to free ourselves from dualistic thinking and from suffering, entering the, the door to non-duality. Um, and so I would be happy for us just to finish up with uh, the support Zaza. But uh, I'm going to leave it there. But I, what I would like to do is just say that, you know, Buddhism isn't just about philosophy. As part of Buddhism's philosophy, Buddhism loves metaphors. And metaphors can be very helpful to understanding things, but also metaphors don't really help us realize non-duality or emptiness. But anyway, I did want to trot out a, um, a visual aid and a metaphor, a metaphor for uh, how the world works and how Buddhism is. Uh, could you? Uh, 
display that photograph. Okay. <laughs> All of you must be familiar with this, right? This is a Hoberman sphere. Yeah. It's made up of six hoops, and wherever they overlap, there's a joint. So it's a, a sphere made of triangles. It's a geodesic dome that isn't just half. It's, it's a geodesic dome that extends in the 10 directions. And um, what I want to say is when we look at, at the Hoberman sphere, we see the triangles and we see the facets. Um, and we, we've got words for them. We can we not only perceive them, we can refer to them. Um, but what Buddhism would say is that the triangles and the facets are real, but they aren't things in the sense of, you know, having actual causal significance being separate, uh, unitary, independent, entities. So in early Buddhism, they would have looked at the triangle, they would have looked at the uh, at the facets, and they would have broken it down, sort of the way they would break down the body into the five skandhas, and they would say, well, it's there's really no triangle there. Triangle and facet, that's just an over conceptual overlay you've placed on a set of three um, struts and the joints that connect them so that and um, so it, so it, it's just a projection rejection um, in Mahayana then we might add that um, the facets and triangles only exist in connection and dependent upon the struts and the existence of not just this triangle and this this uh, facet, but the other triangles and facets of of all of the other triangles and facets that exist as part of the Hoberman sphere, so that um, Mahayana thinking would say that, that there is no. There's a real triangle, there's a real facet, but they're only rela relational. They're not substantive or essential. And this is the way we, uh, we reflexively think about and perceive ourselves in the world. We take these, what are relational existences, made of composite existences, changeable existences, they're completely dependent upon the rest of the world and it uh, also causes and conditions for the rest of the world and we treat them as concrete things we project our idea the conceptual overlay onto these struts and joints we project our conceptual overlay onto our five skandhas and the four elements and all of the atomic dharmas that make up our body out. So the good news of Buddhism is that um, 
we can liberate ourselves from this kind of thinking and from the suffering that, that arises from our fear, our desires and fears and, um, and delusion. Uh, as a result of our thinking of ourselves as these real substantive beings that don't correspond to the that don't correspond to our thoughts about them. Um, but it's more difficult than it's not what Vimalakirti and the Bodhisattvas would say. It's what the Buddha would say. We escape, we enter the door of non-duality by taking a backward step from a dualistic thinking, perceiving, and emotion, desires. So I'm going to leave it at that. And um, I welcome any comments, questions, people have about anything I have to say, or disagreements with anything I have to say. Thank you. Uh, so you're making me feel very good about my uh, ongoing anxiety about being very interested in Sazen and not very interested in philosophizing <laughs> or reading or any of that stuff <laughs> and not being sure that that's okay. Uh, so you're making me feel like it's okay. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> Sure. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm just uh, hearing what I want to hear. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I don't want to read any of those 38. Uh, oh, I don't think you have to read those. I won't. I think that the other, <laughs> that the other chapters 3 through 8, which are mostly Vimala Kirti's talking about what's involved in the Buddhist life, how we free ourselves from delusion and suffering and how we lead the bodhisattva life are, are illuminating and inspiring. And if there's anything that's missing in chapter 9, it's the material from chapter 5, the consolation of the invalid, and chapter 8, the family of the Tathagatas, about how truly to ex to transcend ourselves, to enter non-duality, to express our non-separate connected nature to the world, our mutually interdependent relation with the world, we, we uh, interact with other beings. We work to, we recognize the suffering of other beings uh, and work to relieve their suffering, um, not as Kamalakirti criticizes the disciples for doing, just resting in our own tranquility, in our own attainment, but reaching out, going out into the world and all of its activities without being caught up in the, the delusion and attachment aversion that's involved in that, but working to um, resolve the suffering of other beings. And that only that is ultimate realization. That seeing into emptiness is not we're seeing through seeing through duality is not final awakening. So anyway, and patient. I just 
wanted to express that I thought that that was a wonderful talk. It really, really was. And um, I don't have a lot to say, but but I, which is probably just as well. Um, but I, but I think I just wanted to go with what you just said, which is I think. For me, I, I probably am, you know, simplistic or I, I there's just this part of me that just feels like that just it, it just can't be that complicated um, because or it is that complicated, but I don't know that we can really fully grasp it. But I think that that is the important thing is to allow our practice to make us aware of our limitations, to help us to develop a flexible mind that can, um, you know, respond to situations without being being fixed and and without um knowing that that our you know as we as we act in the um you know limited phenomenal world to try not to get too fixed on that but to recognize that there is that that spacious absolute well, and, and I don't know, maybe that's the point of the explanations that the bodhisattvas are given in chapter nine, how to enter the door to non-duality. That they give these logical arguments based on emptiness. They're not saying things don't exist, but they don't exist the way we do. So these things don't exist the way we think they do either. At some point, we just kind of go, Stop, and maybe that makes our mind stop too. Well, even and then we enter, we have more, we open up, even that is tightly bound by. Yeah, even the idea that there's a door into non-duality. I mean, if if there were such a thing, we'd have to walk right back out because we'd have to like take another breath, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's like the void. David Ray. David. Hi, Douglas. Thank you so much for that. Am I, can you hear me? Yes. Can now. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, this, this chapter is so different from the rest of this text, right? As, as you were saying, the Vimalakirti Sutra has got so much, you know, passion and earthiness, and it's like almost tantric and about living in the world. And so, you know, I've been thinking about this chapter, which I love, and like, what's up with it? So one thought that I have is this, that, you know, Vimalakirti sets this up like a classroom. He's the one who asks all these bodhisattvas this question, how do bodhisattvas enter into the Dharma gate of non-duality? And they're all good little brilliant students, and each, and it's like performance art, and they're beautiful. I mean, they are really beautiful answers. Um, and at the end, he could say, well, you're all wrong and this is why, or I'm going to tell you the right answer now, or they're all bad because, you know, dualism is dualistic anyway, and you didn't notice that my answer was a trick. He could have said any of those things. But he does this, I think it's really wonderful and teacherly that he just lets all, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't negate their answers by being silent. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just there. They're all where they are. He's where he is. Um, I, you know, I aspire to do that as a teacher. I find it very hard. You won't be surprised to know that I find it hard to be quiet and let my students talk. But, but, but it's so good when that happens. Anyway, that's the thing that I admire about this chapter. Yeah, I mean, they have a point, but, uh, the bodhisattvas have points 
and you, you can understand their arguments, but at best they come up with partial truth and you have to ask, okay, what is the liberative importance of an argument like that? That's it. And, and in so doing, you create another, I, in so doing, you create another duality. Yeah. Yeah, it's Bajashri pointed out, yeah. Kathy, did you have something you wanted to say? Yes, thank you for that talk. That was um, terrific. And um, it made me think about Thich Nhat Hanh as you were talking. And his, uh, I remember hearing him once uh, spend an hour describing how a piece of paper, where it came from, you know, the the various places and spaciousness over time and things that were required uh, so that you that always makes me think about um, things in my life that I consider my things or they have a certain function and realizing, you know, they came from a tree at some point and that came from a forest and that came uh, there. Um, it, it just goes on and on that, that, that if we were in a different point in time, uh, none of this would be the way it is now. Um um so that sense of um non-duality also having to do with losing a sense of time recognizing that you know this is a, it's like it's a wash we're a wash in time um millennia we're at one small point which also is part of the non-duality that's what went through my mind but i appreciate the talk um it made it very clear and it i i also think sometimes maybe zazen is the easiest way to capture this maybe it's difficult doing it with conceptual reading or thinking Mm -hmm. thank you thank you yeah, kind of following up on what Kathy said, I really appreciate the talk, by the way. And it just seems so complicated to me with the circling around of dualism after dualism and dualism, and the whole thing with the chair and having the chair out there and then wanting the chair and somebody else use the chair. And it just got so daunting. I thought, well, what, 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 what do we do here? And then at the end, it was like, well, you just do Sasan. And I thought, Okay, I can do that. <laughs> and it just made it, it was like, as soon as you got to that point, it was like, okay, it just like cut through all of the, I don't know, craziness my mind was getting filled up. It was like, oh, we'll just sit down and be done. <laughs> Thank you. Hi again. Uh, Douglas, thank you. I thought that was a wonderful talk. Um, just to add a couple things. One is that each of the responses from the different bodhisattvas, you know, are worthy of study and are actually entries into the Dharma door of non-duality. However, you know, the bottom line, the, the, the climax is this silence and 
I was remembering that somewhere, I think it's maybe in one of Thurman's notes to the sutra, uh, or maybe it's in the sutra, that it says that Shakyamuni Buddha is a Buddha who teaches by silence, which is awesome, right? <laughs> and well, other teachers. Uh, Shakyamuni, the silent. Right. Other Buddhas teach but in other ways. So there's a Buddha uh, who I think is a, appears in the sutra who teaches by, with fragrance. <laughs> and there are other Buddhas who teach with um, itching. <laughs> there are other Buddhas who teach with parasols, or there are other Buddhas who teach with, uh, you know, sound. So anyway, uh, so this silence is, uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you, Douglas. Something I didn't mention that I thought was interesting about chapter nine is that a number of the arguments that the bodhisattvas make are actually arguments that Vimalakirti made earlier in the sutra in chapters three, four, and five. And, um, you know, to follow up on David's analogy, it is like they're really good students who if they can just parrot back what the teacher had to say, they've got it. They must, <laughs> they should get approval and surely they should attain liberation. As a result. Um, it's kind of it's interesting that all of these are these are skillful means that that they are valuable under specific conditions, and so you can't just trot these arguments out at any time because they're timeless truths. 